We're going to begin by reading Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 11, on page 592. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces east. There at the entrance of the gate were 25 men. And I saw among them Jehazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benaniah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in the city. They say, Will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. That is what you are saying, O house of Israel. But I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pot. But I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but are conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaniah, died. And then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Our sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, y- your brothers, y- your brothers who are your blood relatives, and the whole house of Israel are, are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, Yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you, where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to the vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings and the glory of, the, of God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city 
and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. Carmen's going to read from Colossians. Second, re- second reading is from Colossians 1, verse 3 to 14, page 833. Colossians 1, 3 to 14, page 833. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in our order, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks, Carmen. Good evening, friends. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Simon. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Church by the Bridge and here at Saturday Night. Uh, when Paul mentioned just before, and he mentioned it to me up the back, that there was this sort of low ebb tonight, a bit of a feeling of sort of oppression, I said, well, I'm not going to help much. Um, tonight, we look at Ezekiel chapters 4 right through to 24, when God says goodbye. And if you were here last week, I described that Ezekiel is a bit like Paul Keating's economic kind of policy when he was in power as the ex-Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, His policy was that in order for things to get better in the economy, things have to get a whole lot worse. Um, If you have a look at this next slide, I put this up last week. Uh, Here's the J-curve of Ezekiel. Uh, Last week we looked at the awesome glory of God as, as Ezekiel got this vision of the majesty and power and splendor of God that There is no power higher, no creaturely power gets anywhere near the power of of Yahweh, the living God, the God of Israel. Tonight, we plummet, uh, as you can see in the J-curve. We go from the glory of God, the vision of God, the, the, the one who speaks to us in Ezekiel, and we plummet right down to the bottom, basically to where that second arrow is, Jerusalem is surrounded, chapter 24. Hang on to your hats, friends, uh, tonight as we come to the Word of God. This is my little one-liner for tonight on the next slide. Religion as substitute for reality is hopeless. Jesus as substitute for judgment is hope. That's what we're looking at tonight. Uh, I'm going to pray 
Would you pray with me as we come before God's word this night? Father, we are but dust. Father, we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. Father, because of our sin, we deserve your judgment, we deserve your wrath. We don't deserve your mercy or, or, or your love. We don't deserve your grace, but Father, we praise you that this night, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his perfect life lived for us, we know grace, we know mercy. Father, we know the good news of the gospel of Jesus only because we know the bad news of our sin. And so, Father, this night, please remind us of just what we have been spared from. May we leave here tonight, Father, renewed in the hope that we have in Jesus. May we be uplifted by the hope we have in Jesus. Father, please take away anything in our lives that stops us knowing Jesus and him alone. Take away things from our lives, Father, that we hope in more than him. Father, gouge out from our hearts idols that don't belong there. May Jesus be centre stage in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our whole lives. Remind us of this tonight, Father. I ask this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hope is necessary for life. I don't know if you've worked that out. Hope is necessary for human life. If you lose all hope, you lose the will to live. You know, with a strong sense of hope, with a goal, with a purpose, with something to get out of bed for in the morning, you can press on, you can live on. But if you don't have a purpose, if you don't have hope, it's hard to get out of bed every day. No hope, it's hard to live. But some kind of hope is therefore necessary for human life. It gives you a sense of direction. It means that the sacrifices you make today, the suffering that you go through today is all worth it because the hope you have drives you on. It's worth continuing, persevering for. That's what the Bible calls hope. Without hope, life is hard to live. With real hope, life makes sense. It was the ancient Israelites in the days of Ezekiel. It's what they meant when they, when they said, our hope is lost. Uh, the words of ultimate despair, our hope is absolutely lost. I was on the plane, I was flying to Melbourne on Thursday of this week, just going by. I'm the kind of guy you probably don't want to sit next to on a plane. Um, I'm the kind of guy who goes, well, I'm here for an hour and a half. Um, I'm sitting right up next against you guys. I think we should talk. <laughs> who hands up if you don't like people like me? You probably, yeah, exactly. I'm here, this is my own time. It's my time of introversion. Get away from me. So I'm the guy who sort of, you know, gets in there and, you know, blah, blah, and I picked the person on my left this time. I was in the middle. Um, we'll call her Nicole. Nicole's sitting there. I said, oh, Nicole, this is my classic line, heading home or going on holidays? She goes, oh, I'm going on holidays. You know, my, uh, my friends have organised a surprise birthday gathering for me in Melbourne and, you know, I'm really excited and it's, I have no idea. They just told me to get on a big red bus at the Melbourne airport and, you know, I don't know what's going on. I said, are you scared? She said, yeah, a little bit. I don't know what. They, are they, are they good friends? 
She said, oh, largely, you know. Anyway, the conversation kept going and she was willing at least to talk to me. I said to her, oh, sort of a pause, a pregnant pause in the conversation happened where I think she was probably going, please don't ask me another question. I said, oh, have you had a good week? And she said, no, I've had a really terrible week. And I said, oh, but it was your birthday on Monday. Yeah, but on that same day, I went to work and our whole company is in receivership. My whole world has fallen out from underneath me, she said. She's part of the Hasty group. She works for them and her life has been turned upside down. All her hopes and dreams and ambitions, everything she was looking forward to over the next week to 12 months have all kind of crumbled from underneath her. She has, and she actually articulated, she has, she's actually said, I'm lacking hope. She lacked hope. I said, I can tell you about Ezekiel chapter 4 to 24. I talked to her about hope. I talked to her about genuine hope, solid hope. Hope that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for her that she comes to know Jesus. In light of her hopeless situation, her life dreams kind of just fell apart with one, got out of her car, walked up to the gate, no job, no future, doesn't know what to do. Without hope, human life's hard to live. But it's in Christ that we have real hope. The Bible teaches us tonight that Proper hope is in knowing God. Real hope comes from knowing God. Last week, as we looked at this introduction to Ezekiel, uh, we know that after the vision Ezekiel received from God, uh, he's then sent by God as a prophet to this people of Israel, those who remain as God's people. Uh, they're, in Jeru- they're in Babylon, under exile uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had come down, the king of Babylon, routed uh, Jerusalem kicked all the Israelites out, put them into exile, 597 BC. And Ezekiel was called to be a messenger of hopelessness. Fancy that as a job. His first task was to speak to this stubborn, rebellious, obstinate, deaf, hard hearted people. Not to say, oh, yeah, you've brought political disaster upon yourselves because of your sin, but no, what he came to say was that the fall of Jerusalem, why you are in exile, was because of the judgment of God. Nothing less than that. What hope is there, I want to know, ask you tonight, what hope is there if God has turned his hand against yourself? What hope do you have if God has turned himself against you? The living God, more powerful than any creature, any power in the world. What if he's turned his back on you? And for seven years, seven years, Ezekiel preached to Israel this message of judgment. Can you imagine that? Imagine church by the bridge, Paul and others come down from St. Thomas, it's about seven years ago or so, and all you hear week in, week out is judgment, 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 judgment. And you stick it out. Imagine that. I wouldn't like to be Paul in that situation, preaching judgment, judgment, judgment. But again and again, judgment, judgment, judgment. Those seven years are covered in chapters 4 to 24. It's so miserable that we're only spending tonight on it. But it's so important that we need to spend a night on it. In in these 20 chapters, the word of God that Ezekiel brought to those Israelites in exile was again and again, 
you ain't seen nothing yet. He didn't write that, but that's the gist. You ain't seen nothing yet. Come have a look with me as we scan through these 20 chapters. And I want you to kind of pick up the refrain. Paul read the refrain at one point as he went through, as he read chapter 11. But open your Bibles, uh, flick with me to chapter 5 of Ezekiel. Just listen to the refrain and the sense that you get. This is why I'm thinking my message is not really going to help lift the oppression levels at this stage. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 13. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. Your people will fall slain among you and you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 6, And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. Chapter, uh, verse 14 of chapter 6, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate waste from the desert to Dibla, wherever they live. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 4, I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 12. And you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Chapter 13, verse 14. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 23, verse 14. This is a helpful way to get through a whole lot of chapters really fast. Um, Chapter 23, verse 49. You will suffer the penalty for your lewdness, and bear the consequences of your sins, your sin of idolatry, then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Perhaps you have a feel now for Ezekiel's message of hopelessness. For it's a message that shatters any optimism for the Israelites. The Old Testament exile, this period of judgment, was a time that seemed to breed what I've called Pollyannas, uh, people who would always sort of say, always look on the bright side of life. You know, people like that, always look on the bright side of life. We still have our religions, they would say. We've still got our traditions, our beloved city of Jerusalem. It's conquered, but it's not yet smashed. It's still kind of there. The sacred temple, it's still there in its midst, and someday we'll get back there, someday. One day we'll start over again. It really, ultimately, it could be a lot worse. Through those seven years, in a bewildering number of ways, through the message God gives to Ezekiel, it becomes far worse. God is against you, is what Ezekiel says. He kind of says, God is against you. How thick are you, Israel? God will depart from you. The one certain fact that lies in the future of Israel 
is that God will be God. He will be God and they will know it. I'll do all these things that you will know that I am the Lord. That's the refrain. And Ezekiel gets to do all these crazy symbolic acts so that they will know that God is the Lord. Uh, throughout these, he just performs some bizarre symbolic acts. At one point, he shaves his head. Uh, we talked about it last year. One year, he, he lies on his right side for a whole year, cannot move. He then can move for a moment to then get onto his left side and lie for a year, bound, gagged, mute. Strange symbolic acts to make that point, know that I am the Lord. He preaches powerful sermons to make the point, know that God is the Lord. Elaborate parables that he kind of has to say and act out again and again and again so that Israel will know that Yahweh is the Lord. And perhaps most tellingly of all are the chapters we're going to have a look at in more detail tonight, chapters 8 to 11, where he tells of a most strange experience that makes the point. Have a look with me at chapter 8. Flick open your Bibles back to chapter 8 of Ezekiel. We're going to follow this account briefly uh, tonight. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, it starts. It's been about a year since his initial call back in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Uh, And he says these words. Have a look with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house... And the elders of Judah were sitting before me. The hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. Does this sound familiar? Chapter 1. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God. He took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Whatever you may want to say about Ezekiel, his life wasn't dull, was it? You would have recalled chapter 1 there. Uh, Here it is again. I don't know exactly what Ezekiel's vision was. I'm not sure. I don't know if this was just a vision that was only going on in his head at the time. So he's sitting there amongst the elders of Judah and he's just having this amazing vision just while he's sitting there in Bible study. I don't know. Or it might have been some sort of supernatural kind of transportation, physically moved from Babylon to Jerusalem some kind of out-of-body experience. I don't know for sure. I don't think it really matters that much which way we go. Whatever happened, in whatever way, God in some sense brought Ezekiel from Babylon to Jerusalem, to the north gate of the temple, to the inner court, to what I've called the scene of the crime. It's possible that Ezekiel, what Ezekiel saw was exact things that were happening in the temple at the time, But it's also possible that what Ezekiel gets given is a bird's eye view or a vision of what God is seeing going on in the temple. Do you see the difference? Some of the things described here may represent what was going on in the temple, but it could actually be what just God is seeing and what he comments on. So what does he see? Chapter 8, verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 3. 
He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me into Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate. And see it there? Where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. He sees this image of an idol that provokes God to jealousy. And yet in verse 4, on the other hand, he saw the glory of the God of Israel. The idol in verse 3 and then the glory of the God of Israel in verse 4. He sees, in other words, a complete contradiction. He sees the reality of God versus the idolatry, the sin of Israel. This is how the situation looked to God. Have a look. Read on in verse 5 with me. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance of the north gate of the altar I saw the idol of jealousy. Verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. And so he does as this chapter unfolds. We may not know exactly what was going on in the temple at Jerusalem, but we know what God thought of it. And the word is detestable. Another translation, abomination. I'm sure Israel was being quite religious in everything they were doing. But like most religions, I don't know if you've noticed about religion, it tends to make religion, they'll take religion more seriously than it actually takes God. Religion becomes what we sort of worship rather than the God whom we're supposed to be worshipped. Oh, religion was certainly taking place in the temple at Jerusalem with Israel. They were practicing religion religiously. But they weren't humbly sitting under the word of God. Not seriously repenting of their sins. That wasn't happening. Not crying out to God for much-needed mercy and forgiveness. Not that. But religion. Religion was alive and well in Israel. Because religion gives that sense of stability to life. It doesn't transform life into obedience to the word of God, but it helps you live. It's a comfort in the world that knocks you about, that is unpredictable. It helps preserve a little bit of hope and helps us to cope. It always does that. It breeds Pollyannas. Always look on the bright side of life. And in light of this, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations they are committing to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see far greater detestable acts. 8 chapter 6. You see, friends, the reality of God who Ezekiel has seen in chapter 8, verse 4, the reality of God shows up and shatters the sham optimism of religion. Have a look with me how this particular chapter concludes. Verse 18. Therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. It's really easy to make religion a substitute for the reality of knowing God as God. That's the great problem with religion. Religion's our human attempt to know and to please God. 
the things we work out for ourselves that we think will please, honour, help us to know God and perhaps ultimately win his favour. We have the audacity to build buildings and call them the house of God. Whatever made us think that God needed a house built by human hands? And the Bible tells us that he doesn't want that. I say this with trepidation as we're thinking about rebuilding our church a little bit. But as if church architecture somehow is all about arousing certain feelings in our hearts and minds that sort of feel like we're more connected with God because we're in a different kind of space. One of the things I like about our church building is that it's kind of pretty plain. The word of God is at the centre, not the building. Feelings of emotion and how we know God is not through the building, it's through actually hearing God speak to us. As if the feelings of being in a really nice environment are linked to us knowing and honour honouring God. Whoever gave us that idea? What are the ingredients of your religion? Your attempts to worship God? Your ideas of how you please God and how God is experienced? How is God to be honoured? Maybe for you buildings have absolutely nothing to do with it. What is it? What is your religion, the ingredients of your religion? Perhaps it's music. Maybe it's music. I wonder what gave us the idea that God likes one kind of music more than he likes another kind of music. I've got a theory, actually. You can come and talk to me about this theory later. I think God is tone deaf. I think God's tone deaf. Do you think God is any more pleased by a song that's sung with amazing music compared to a tone-deaf person like... We won't go there. What about a child who just stammers out words of praise of God? On which situation does God smile? The beautiful music or stammering praises of God? Maybe for you, the ingredients of your religion is informality or formality. Whatever made us think that God likes formality, or for that case, informal gatherings? Whatever made us think that God loves each or either one? Maybe it's for some of you here tonight, maybe not so many of us, the Anglican tradition. Whatever. It would seem that today, every bit as much as it was in the days of Ezekiel and the people of Israel, was that God can, that religion can be a substitute for reality. For the reality of taking God and his word with utter seriousness. For the reality of turning to him and him alone for forgiveness. And being transformed people by the forgiveness that we receive in him. For the reality of knowing that we need his mercy more than we need anything else. Depending body, soul, mind and spirit on him. It isn't, but so easy, isn't it, friends? So easy for religion to be part of our life as a substitute for reality of knowing God. What Ezekiel tells us in chapter 8, particularly here, is that religion is hopeless. Hopeless. 
chapter 8, verse 18, although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. And in chapters 9 and 10, hang on to your hats, the vision continues just when you want a bit more. Uh, This amazing experience, still in the vision, Ezekiel gets another vision, still in Jerusalem. Uh, He sees in chapters 9 and 10 the inevitable consequences of God being God and his people for all their religion being obstinate and stubborn. In chapter 9, Ezekiel sees the punishment that's coming on these people. Have a look with me. Uh, you can read the details of chapter 9 at sort of over some quiet time in the next couple of days. But have a look with me at verse 10. It kind of summarizes uh, this passage. Chapter 9, verse 10. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their heads what they have done. God is God, and he will be God. It cannot be disregarded without impunity. No amount of religion can change that reality. And in chapter 10, Ezekiel sees the glory again of the Lord. A detailed description comes again this time. But this time it's God saying goodbye as God departs the temple of Jerusalem. This was horrific news that Ezekiel brought to the people of God. For Ezekiel sees God abandoning his people for all their religion. God departs. Now in chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, Ezekiel is shown again what is going on in the temple. Let me show you just briefly. Again, over a cup of coffee tomorrow, read these chapters in detail. I hear the words of the optimists who are still in Jerusalem. Uh, In verse 3, this is probably a a question. It's a question in our translation. Sometimes it's a statement. It probably is meant to be a question. Chapter 11, verse 3. They say, "Will will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot and we are the meat. It's a strange saying, isn't it? Very odd saying. I think it means... It's hot outside, but we're okay. That's what I think it means. It's hot outside, but we're actually okay on the inside. But Then have a look what God says to them. In their absolute sham optimism, because of their religious practices, thinking they're okay with God, God has departed, yet they say, it's hot outside, we're okay. Have a look at verse 8, chapter, verse eight, chapter 11. You fear the sword. And the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword. And I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel and you will know that I am the Lord for you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Could hardly be clearer, could it? What hope can there be when God himself has turned his face against you? When you understand that the judgment of God is a reality, 
and you understand that the reality of that judgment is coming against you. That was the situation of those exiles. And Ezekiel says, what hope can there be? The answer to that question will occupy the sermons that are going to come later in this series that will end with a bit of a happier note. But there is an indication of that hope that comes in chapter 11, verses 14 to 21. I'm not going to take that up right now. But let me signal that there is an answer. In fact, it is the only answer that is possible. The answer is actually, in many ways, the greatest of all paradoxes. The answer is that if it is true that God is against you, if you are facing God as just judge and you are guilty before him, which we all are, if all you deserve is his righteous and just punishment for your sin, then the only possible hope is to turn to God, not religion. God is your only hope. And friends, Ezekiel 11 concludes with Ezekiel brought back to Babylon to tell the the Israelites, the exiles, everything he'd seen. For seven years, Ezekiel brought the message, the message of hopelessness. In various ways, in various sayings, he brought it, but he brought it to the exiles till at very last in chapter 24. This phase of his ministry reaches a tragic climax. I find these particular words really difficult to preach on. Turn with me to chapter 24. It's heartbreaking. This is where I think to myself, who would be Ezekiel? Chapter 24, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, with One blow. I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. Ezekiel's wife dies. With one foul blow, she dies. The delight of his eyes. And God says, you are not to mourn her death. And so Ezekiel becomes his own personal picture of utter hopelessness and despair. such hopelessness that he could not even weep, such despair that he could not, he could only groan in silence. And so unnatural was what he was doing that the people came and asked him, what are you saying by doing this, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel said to them, this is a sign. This is a sign for you of what you will be doing. Because God was about to destroy the centre of their lives. God was coming in judgment to the precious Jerusalem, to their precious temple that were about to get smashed. And right at the end of chapter 24, verse 24, 
He says, Ezekiel will be a sign to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. It's a pretty miserable note to conclude on, isn't it? Well, it seems so. We've only heard part of the story. The word of God does come to us and it shatters hopeless hopes. The hopeless hopes of Israel or perhaps the hopeless hopes of modern Australians. The word of come, the word of God comes to shatter hopeless hopes precisely because it's God's purpose to replace our hopeless hopes with real hopes. We're going to look at this more next week, but he replaces our hopeless hopes with solid hope, hope that has substance, hope that will not disappoint, hope that lasts and will never be shattered. This night, however, we should allow the word of God to do its work in us. And the word of God that we've heard from Ezekiel tonight is amplified some thousands and thousands and thousands of times by the word of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the cross. You see, when we hear of Jesus' death on the cross and what it means, there we see the reality of God and his judgment. See him on the cross. Hear his cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See him there, hear him there, and ask, what good our religion? When the perfect son of man hangs on the cross and God departs from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the face of that reality, in the face of the Lord Jesus dying in our place, dying on the cross for the sin of the world to absorb the judgment of God, the right judgment of God for sin. What can our religion do? What good our optimistic thinking? What good our thinking? Always look on the bright side of life. What good our looking on that side of life? What hope can there be for those of us, all of us, who find ourselves under the right judgment and wrath of God? Only God himself. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us clearly, as clearly as can be, that there is no hope in this world apart from him under the wrath of God. There's no hope apart from Christ. The message of Ezekiel still reverberates in the gospel. You will know that I am the Lord. And at that same cross, as we hear the word of the gospel, as we understand something of what happened when Jesus died there, another note in Ezekiel's message is amplified a thousand upon a thousand, upon a thousand times. We hear Jesus say to God, his Father, the God whose wrath he was experiencing and absorbing on our behalf, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is only one place to turn for hope. 
and you understand the reality of your sin, and you understand the reality of the judgment you deserve, when you understand that we all, because of our sin, stand, sit in a hopeless situation, you realize that there is only one place to go for real, lasting, solid hope. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father, into your hands we commit our lives, our souls, our bodies, our spirit, Father. Father, we pray as we've heard this word of Ezekiel tonight of your right judgment against our hopeless religion. Lord, our hopeless attempts to pretend that we're okay with you, Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are hopeless without Christ. Father, it's a hard word to hear, but Father, I pray that we would give up all those things which we think make us right with you that don't, that actually just bring upon ourselves your, your right judgment. Father, may all, all of us here tonight cling to Jesus, hope in Jesus alone. For myself, for my brothers and sisters and friends here tonight, may Jesus be at the centre of our worship our whole lives. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.